0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Boris Johnson's government unveiled plan this week to override the Brexit trade deal to address that contentious Northern Ireland protocol.
2: What it does is it creates unnecessary barriers on on trade east-west. What we can do is fix that. It's not a big deal. Uh, We can fix it in such a way as to remove those bureaucratic barriers, but without putting up barriers on trade moving north-south in the island of Ireland uh, as well.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be delving into the situation with the Northern Ireland Protocol and whether the Johnson government's plans will break international law, how the EU might respond, and whether this is all one big bluff. Public policy editor Peter Foster will take us into the details with our Ireland correspondent, Jude Weber. And later, we'll be examining the resignation of Lord Christopher Guide, the Prime Minister's independent advisor on ministerial interests. Why did he quit his job after a turbulent year? Can or should he be replaced? And wanted to tell us about the ethics and morality of this particular administration. Chief political commentator Robert Shimsley will chat through with special guest Hannah White from the Institute for Government Think Tank. Thank you all for joining. Pretty much ever since it was negotiated, Boris Johnson has been unhappy with the Northern Ireland protocol. Supporters of the PM say it was a result of the political circumstances of 2019. They had no choice to accept it due to a lack of a parliamentary majority. But critics, however, say the Northern Ireland issue was always going to be the hardest part of Brexit and the compromise between the UK and the EU was essential. After months and months of negotiations to try and solve the issue talks between the EU and the UK fell apart and London is acting unilaterally. The government put forward legislation on Monday that would override part of the protocol if and when ministers decide to do so. Their stated reasons was to deal with issues regarding the Good Friday Agreement. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss said it was clear the government was acting, however, in international law.
3: We're very clear that we're acting in line with the law. We'll be publishing our legal statement later today, What is vitally important is that we do resolve this situation in Northern Ireland that is causing real problems we haven't seen the executive operating since February we need to get power sharing re-established we know how hard won the Belfast Good Friday Agreement was and that is why the government has to act Uh, that is why we are introducing this legislation
1: Well, Peter Foster, welcome back to the pod. You've been following this closely. This legislation has been talked about for some time. What did you make of the bill when it was published on Monday?
2: Well, it is an extraordinary piece of legislation, as John Jones QC, the former government top lawyer, who resigned uh, in 2020 the last time the government decided to unilaterally rewrite the protocol called it. And it's extraordinary because, Sebastian, what it does is switch off automatically once it gets on the statute book really the core of the protocol. So that's the bit that governs trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which the government says the EU is is implementing in too stringent a way the checks on that Irish sea border that are necessary to keep Northern Ireland in the EU single market for goods. It switches off the role of the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, and it removes the section on state aid, which required the British government to notify Brussels of state aid or subsidy decisions that might cut across the EU goods market. And more than that, if you look at clauses 15 and 18, it effectively gives the government ministers, if they produce secondary legislation pretty much sweeping powers to do whatever it likes with the rest of the protocol. Only three articles of the protocol are specifically protected in the legislation. So it is actually much more sweeping than the Internal Market Bill 2020, where the government admitted, you remember Brandon Lewis saying it was a specific and limited breach of international law. Well, this piece of legislation is potentially, if it ever gets on the statute book, far, far more sweeping than that.
1: Well, Jude Webber, it's great to have you back on as always.
2: How did the bill go down in
4: Belfast? Was it essentially down typical Unionist, Nationalist lines? Absolutely. Obviously, the Nationalists said... There's no excuse for the government to be pandering to the whims of the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party. They're the ones who are keeping the political institutions from working at the moment because they are refusing to allow the election of a speaker at the Stormont Assembly and they're refusing to go into the power sharing assembly. But the DUP predictably said, well, we are worried about the protocol undermines our place in the the UK. Therefore, we can't have it. We can't have this Irish Sea border. They're sort of wising up a little bit. They realise they've been let down by the government many times before. And so now they're insisting that they can't go back into the institutions of Stormont until there is progress. And so delivering a bill isn't enough. They actually want to see progress. So that's sort of shaping up to be a bit of a tug of war, where the government doesn't want to advance the bill through to the House of Lords until the DUP is committed to going back in and the DUP doesn't want to commit to going back in until there's actual progress. So, you know, it's the same old stalemate.
1: Well, as you said, Peter, the bill really did have some quite sweeping powers in it and it's not a surprise it didn't get a good reception from the EU. This is what Maricef Kovic, the chief Brexit negotiator on the protocol, made of it.
4: Any renegotiations would simply bring further legal uncertainty for the people and businesses in Northern Ireland. For these reasons, the European Union will not renegotiate the protocol. Today's decision by the UK Government undermines the trust that is necessary for bilateral EU UK cooperation within the framework of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement.
1: Well, Peter, when you hear that, do you think the Johnson government is actually trying to tweak the protocol, as we heard the Prime Minister say at the beginning there? Or is it, as Mao just said, is actually trying to undermine and change it entirely? Where's the
2: actual truth? No, it's absolutely clear the British government is trying to fundamentally rewrite the protocol. Remember, the protocol required Northern Ireland to follow the EU single market rules for goods. This action this legislation would absolutely turn the protocol on its head i don't think there's any real doubt about that it's not tidying up it's not fixes it's a wholesale rewrite of a protocol that the government now says it negotiated under duress and and says is untenable we can argue about whether it is or isn't untenable but i don't think we can argue about whether or not this action by the government is a fundamental rewrite of the protocol it clearly is But Jude, the government's stated aim about trying to get this thing moving again is all about
1: power sharing at Stormont. And following those May elections, the DUP have refused to go in. And Geoffrey Donaldson, the party's leader, did not signal that the introduction of this bill would immediately put them back into government.
2: The UK government has a primary responsibility to protect the integrity of the United Kingdom and its internal market, whilst at the same time making reasonable proposals that offer uh, protection to the European Union and their single market. So we will consider these proposals against our seven tests to determine if they meet what is required uh, to uh, achieve the objectives.
1: So when you hear that, Jude, at what point could the DUP go back in?
4: Jeffrey Donaldson has said that he could take a phased response. There's speculation that he might be tempted back to allow the election of a Speaker at Stormont at some stage, maybe, you know, in the next month or two, but that he might hold out and not allow the power sharing executive to resume until the bill's actually on the statute books. He's going to come under pressure, obviously. The Stormont executive was down from 2017 to 2020, and it was incredibly unpopular with voters in Northern Ireland. They just thought their politicians were picking up their paychecks and doing absolutely nothing. And I think obviously next year in April, we have the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which is what everybody here says they're trying desperately to protect. And that was the peace agreement that ended the troubles. And so it'll be a very bad look if the executive isn't up and running by them. But there's no guarantee at this stage from the DUP, from Jeffrey Donaldson, that that's actually even possible. And Peter,
1: what do you make of the government's stated aim about this being at the Good Friday Agreement? Because as we know, there's plenty of Brexiters like Lord David Frost who negotiated the Brexit deal who've come out against the protocol and supported the government's proposals. Is it about that, about trying to have a cleaner break with the EU? Or is it generally, do you think, about trying to save the Belfast Agreement?
2: Well, I make two points, Sebastian. One is that if you're trying to save the Good Friday Agreement, it's very difficult to do that if you're taking the position of one side over another. Remember, a majority of members of the Legislative Assembly in Northern Ireland support the protocol continuing uh, in its current form or with you know some easements and amendments. Therefore, it's very difficult to see how you can be protecting the Good Friday Agreement if you're taking a position that ultimately, if it was implemented, would be, I've no doubt, rejected by Sinn Féin and by the nationalist community. I think the government... Has got itself into a pickle here, really. It closed down the space for compromise by the DUP by running around for a year saying the protocol is a complete mess, a complete disaster. And then it's proposed a solution that might satisfy the right wing of the Tory party, the sort of super sovereigntists, whilst not acknowledging that its own choice to have a very hard Brexit, a very clean break, a very minimalist FTA with the EU, makes managing that border in the Irish Sea much more difficult because the gap between the regulations of the EU single market for goods in Northern Ireland is much higher than it would have been than if we'd done a closer type of Brexit and we'd stayed in the customs union and we'd had an SBS agreement on food and sanitary checks. At that point, as indeed Edwin Poots told the Prime Minister and David Frost in 2020 when they were negotiating the deal, at that point, you'd have a much lower border and it would have been much more manageable.
1: And why has the government just not triggered Article 16? Because this was the talking point for quite some time amongst pro-Brexit advocates of saying we could trigger Article 16 because there are clauses within that saying that if the protocol creates unstable economic and societal circumstances, Article 16 can be triggered and that can suspend the protocol and people could argue the fact that the DUP are against it and they won't go into power sharing is that. So why have they chosen this unilateral legislation route?
2: Well, it's a very good question, Sebastian, and i tell you why. Because they don't want to dignify a treaty, a protocol that they're trying to rip up. If they trigger Article 16, they have to go into a joint negotiation with the European Union. They have to do the absolute minimum to disturb the protocol. And you're quite right. Before, there was a lot of chat about Article 16, but that's all gone by the wayside because the government fundamentally wants to rip up this treaty. It wants to turn it on its head, and therefore it doesn't want to use Article 16. I think one of the interesting things, of course, is that that rather undermines their legal argument. They say that, you know, the doctrine of necessity requires them to take this very drastic unilateral action, and yet the doctrine of necessity requires it to be clear that there's no other avenue open to the party and that the situation was caused by events beyond the control of the state that's using that doctrine. Well, if they haven't triggered Article 16, if they haven't even tried to use the remedy mechanism that's contained in the protocol that they negotiated and signed, it's quite difficult to argue that the doctrine of necessity should kick in according to pretty much every lawyer that you can find who's not in the pay of the British government.
1: And Jude, there is this sort of weird split on this, because as we were saying, obviously, the protocol is very unpopular amongst many segments of the Conservative Party and Brexit advocates in London. The DUP really don't like it, both their MPs and members of the Legislative Assembly. But many businesses in Northern Ireland do like the protocol, and there seems to be a wider body of support for it, because it's actually managed to help give Northern Ireland privileged access to the EU single market and the UK single market.
4: Well, that's it. I mean, unlike with many things in Northern Ireland, it kind of depends on who you ask. So, there was a poll recently that asked unionists what they felt about the protocol. And, you know, not surprisingly, 94% of DUP voters and three quarters of unionists overall thought that the protocol had to go or had to be fundamentally rewritten. As you mentioned earlier, it's not the case, you know, of the majority of elected representatives. And when you talk to people in Northern Ireland, It's a very interesting situation. You know, I spoke this week to a farmer who voted leave, who voted DUP in the assembly elections in May, But he said the protocol shouldn't go because it's actually, he's a dairy farmer and it suits him just fine in a way, because if this bill makes it onto the statute books and opens up the possibility of regulatory divergence from EU standards and the ability for people to choose whether to apply UK or EU standards, well, that's a bit of a nightmare for his industry because it's hugely integrated with the Irish dairy industry. And so, you know, it it wouldn't be workable for him. And that's just one sector that a lot of manufacturers say they, you know, they're getting on with it. You know, very few people will say we love the protocol, but most people in Northern Ireland didn't vote for Brexit. So, you know, this is what they feel is the best sort of workable outcome. So it it is just a huge mess. And finally, Peter, how much of this is a bluff, do you think?
1: Because obviously the bill was introduced on Monday. We've got no indication of when the second reading is going to take place. And that's when it starts to really make its way through the House of Commons before it goes to the House of Lords, where it will no get pulled to shreds. And the bill is not actually itself going to override the protocol. It gives ministers the powers to do that. So... Any actual action is way down the track, months, if not even longer than that. And it did just strike me, is this just about trying to force some kind of compromise in the EU to try and grab the attention of EU leaders? Because so far, this has all been done through the official channels of Liz Truss and Mara Sefcovic. And I think there's some people in Downing Street who feel they need to get the attention of Emmanuel Macron or other EU leaders to actually get the kind of compromise they're looking for. Or do you think actually the Prime Minister is deadly serious?
2: Well, if it is a bluff, Seb, it's not a very good one. I think that's why the government is trying desperately to get the DUP to go back into power sharing as a function of this bill being tabled. Because in order to make the bluff have any force... The Brits need to be able to go back to the Commission and say, look, this approach that you don't like has actually restored power sharing. It's saving the Good Friday Agreement, and therefore you need to agree to lots of it in order to maintain the DUP and power sharing. Of course, if the DUP don't go back in, then that particular fig leaf falls away. As you say, Sebastian, the other problem they've got is that it's going to take at least 18 months to get this bill onto the statute book, if they can... And the EU looks across the channel, it sees an administration in a sort of permanent tailspin most of the time. And it's not even confident that if it did a deal, Boris Johnson would be around there to accept it. And so the EU is clearly taking the view that it's just going to wait and see. The protocol functions fine as it is at the moment, it's not perfect, but it works. And therefore, the bluff such as it is, at the moment, isn't getting the DUP into power sharing. It isn't getting the EU to create concessions. And the longer that goes on, the longer that hiatus survives, the more pressure, I suspect, Boris Johnson will come under from the right of his party, who've actually driven a lot of the content of this bill for more egregious and more direct action. The difficulty I see is it's not clear to me how Boris Johnson moves the ball on. So, you know, he's kind of stuck. And finally, do do you think
1: there are any circumstances you can see the DUP going back in, depending on how this plays out, because it's been, you know, some weeks now since those elections, nothing seems to have budged. And of course, there is a countdown clock that means there will be another set of elections if there is no administration at Stormont.
4: No, I I don't actually see at the moment, I think they've painted themselves into a corner as well. If they're counting on just running down the clock to the next, you know, elections, then that's a very, very, very high stakes gamble, because people in Northern Ireland are fed up of this situation. And there's no guarantee that it would actually result in them getting a better result in the election than they did in May. So the short answer really is no. Jude and Peter,
1: thank you very much. To lose one ministerial ethics advisor may be regarded as a misfortune, as literally everyone in Westminster has been saying this week, but to lose two does look like carelessness. After much indecision and coded statements, Lord Christopher Geit resigned on Wednesday as the Prime Minister's independent advisor on ministerial interests, aka the arbiter of the ministerial code. Guy had a rather hectic years as Johnson's arbiter, having to adjudicate on all manner of scandals with the gate affixed to the end of them. But in his resignation letter, Guy put the blame on an odd dispute about steel tariffs and the UK's commitments to the World Trade Organization. Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Brexit Opportunities Minister, said the reason he quit was about British industry.
3: Look at why he's gone. Lord Guyte has resigned over an issue relating to protecting the British steel industry. I think everyone in this country wants to make sure that we have a competitive steel industry, which is not subject to dumping from other countries. This is really important. There are laws in place that have provided for that. The Prime Minister is backing British industry, and he's right to be doing so.
1: Well, Sir Alex Allen, who was Johnson's first Ministerial Ethics advisor, who quit the role after a dispute over Priti Patel's behaviour, told the BBC that Lord Guyte would not have taken the decision to resign lightly.
3: I just felt really uh, upset that Christopher Guyte, who is a very honourable man, had been put in a position where he felt he had no option but to resign. I've known him for many years and he's a, a dedicated public servant, a man with lots of integrity and... Um, it's, I mean, he wouldn't have taken this decision lightly. It's, um, I mean, it's very sad that it's come to this.
1: Well, Robert Shrimsley, welcome back to the podcast. We've been talking a lot about Christopher Guy through the wallpaper Gate scandal, the party gay scandal. It feels like it's been quite a long time coming,
3: but that stated reason about the steel industry feels a bit odd. It is, I think, very strange. And anybody who's been looking at this has been left scratching their heads for a number of reasons. The first question is, why would the prime minister or the government have consulted him in the first place over an intention to go against a, a trade remedies issue on steel tariffs? He's not a trade lawyer. This is not his specific area of expertise. So the first question in front of asking is what was it about this political decision that made them think they had to go to the ministerial advisor on ethics and standards? And we don't know the answer to that question yet. So if you take it at face value, it's a very, very strange story which seems like there's more to come out. Another possible interpretation, however, is that he had just had enough. He's had many, many months now of being the butt of jokes, of looking like he's had the wool pulled over his eyes by Danish Boris Johnson, not being given the full picture, the sense that he's dealing with somebody who doesn't actually want to play by the code that he is asked to enforce. He had a, a miserable appearance in front of the select committee at the beginning of the week where he looked... Indecisive. He looked weak. He was widely mocked. I think it is quite possible that he'd simply had enough and this was an opportunity to go.
1: Well, Hannah White, it's wonderful to have you back on the podcast as always. What did you make of his resignation? And a lot of people in Whitehall have been pointing to the fact that uh, Guy appeared in front of a parliamentary select committee the day before he resigned. It was not the most comfortable of appearances, shall we? Say? It was full of civil service officialese. He gave some very odd answers about the fact that he had considered resigning but didn't. Do you think that's what drove him to it?
5: I think that's a very plausible explanation. It really was painful listening to him repeatedly in different ways try to justify the fact that he was still in this role as a man of integrity and good conscience, as Alex Allen was saying. You know, it may have become increasingly evident to him during that questioning process that actually this wasn't a tenable position for him to be in. And just to go back to something that that Robert was saying, you know, if the government suddenly decided that it needs to consult the advisor when it is planning to breach the law, obviously there's overarching duty on ministers in the ministerial code to comply with the law and not to break it. You have to ask why they didn't do so or whether they did in fact do so on previous occasions when they seemed to be willing to break the law, for example, over Northern Ireland and so on, why this suddenly would be a, a situation where they felt the need to consult him in that way. Well, Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister,
1: again, put forward this point when he was reacting to Lord Guy's resignation that he was planning to stay on the road for another six months, apparently. Well, in relation to Lord Guy, uh, it's not clear to me at all uh, that uh, what the reason is. And so, I, I, I mean, I think you've been asking me about mm-hmm. that. There are clearly these issues um, around the other commercially... Uh, sensitive matter, which he was engaged on or asked to advise on. My understanding was that, again, to the best of my knowledge, uh, as of earlier this week, he was planning or he was hoping to stay on for another six months. Now, Robert, obviously the fact that Lord Guy has now gone, and as you said, we may or may not ever find out the exact reason. And I think, you know, even people in Downing Street I've spoken to say we're quite baffled by this. It seemed to slightly come out of nowhere. But finding a replacement is not going to be easy. We heard Sir Alex Allen at the beginning there, he quit over allegations of bullying about the Home Secretary Priti Patel, in which that he essentially adjudicated she had broken the ministerial code. Johnson didn't, so he quit. Guy quit over, again, a disagreement with Johnson about this. Like, who on earth would take up this role? Like, is there anyone who comes to mind? Would it be a similar kind of figure? Or
3: could it be someone entirely different? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not a job that has, has longevity or a positive profile written into it when you're trying to police Boris Johnson. I mean, this comes down to the fundamental nature of this job, which is a person who reports to the Prime Minister on the ministerial code. And I think in as far as it was thought through fully in advance, it was envisaged that he or she would be reporting on other ministers rather than on the prime minister themselves, because obviously the prime minister gets any report from their ethics advisor and decides what to do with it. So it doesn't really work if most of the time you're investigating the prime minister and the prime minister is not interested in what you have to say. It's interesting that Boris Johnson has let it be known that he may not bother replacing Christopher Guy. And I think that's an interesting decision because he will lose control of this issue if he doesn't. There's there's something that has to be done around this anyway. And to just say we won't have a, an ethics commission isn't going to help him in the long run when future issues crop up and they have to be able to refer it to somebody. There has to be somebody who parliament or the public trusts to look into things. But it just strikes me that why would you go and do this role under the current terms and conditions? So The kind of person they're going to find to do it is someone who's already has a degree of simpatico with Boris Johnson, which is, of course, exactly what you don't want any prime minister to have as a relationship with their ethics advisor. Well, in the interim, Hannah, it feels like that it's going to be overseen by the
1: Cabinet Officer's Propriety and Ethics Team, and a man called Darren Tierney, who replaced Helen McNara, who our listeners may know, for bringing a karaoke machine into Downing Street during the coronavirus pandemic. So he's in charge notionally of the Civil Service Code and of Ethics and Propriety within government. So he will do it in the interim. But that's not the same as the independent advisor with their role and with their office. And I guess this comes to a question, is the role still suitable? Because it was created, I think, in 2006. But it it feels like we're stuck in the middle between having a proper codified formal procedure with legally binding methods to open investigations and publishing advice, and the kind of classic good chap theory of just having an informal process and not on the head. Where, Where do you see the balance of where this role should
5: be? The role of advisor was, was always a, a bit of a fudge. Prime ministers didn't want to, to give this role the, you know, the full independence, which might see inconvenient uh, investigations and inconvenient conclusions made public. Funny that. I think he also saw with Partygate how difficult other forms of inquiry can be in this sort of situation. You know, the civil service led inquiry that Sue Gray uh, conducted was, was clearly problematic. Not only because it was investigating the prime minister, but because it was investigating, you know, other, you know, possible wrongdoing by ministers, and that's a very difficult situation to put civil servants in. It's certainly up to the prime minister to decide whether he wants this role or not. He can decide the the processes, the 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 roles that there are in this standards area. But what isn't optional, I think, it's important to bear in mind, are the constitutional principles and the underpinning sort of rules and norms which are set out in the code and are have been advised on by this role up to this point, those are not for the Prime Minister to determine. It's not for him to say that actually it's fine for ministers to break the law. That is something which is a constitutional principle of the way we run the country. And I think it's important that you have a code which sets out for ministers what their responsibilities are and having this in, some sort of independent advice on that, if that doesn't exist, you're going to either have the, the courts wanting to take more of an interest... Or you're going to get Parliament wanting to to have more of a say. And I'm not sure either of those outcomes are ones that Boris Johnson would like to see. It
3: seems to me that this is drifting in one absolutely inexorable direction, even if it doesn't happen immediately, which is that we are going to end up with a parliamentary oversight of ministers' conduct uh, in the same way that we have oversight of MPs' conduct. It's always been a gap in the system. And I think what we're seeing now is what we've often seen in the past when problems crop up. In politics. The problem itself illuminates a wider issue with how MPs and ministers are policed and I think there is only one logical ending for this, that we end up with a proper commissioner with teeth and investigative powers of ministerial standards who reports to Parliament rather than the Prime Minister and that Parliament then decides uh, an appropriate sanction. That's still difficult of course because they'll only ever be reporting on the government since they're looking at ministers and the government has a majority but clearly if the crimes are serious enough one would expect enough members of a governing party to peel off and support some form of punishment. So the long run, I think there's only one way this is going to go. How long the long run is? Well, that's the question we don't know the answer to. I
1: tend to agree with you, Robert, that I think that if you look at where exactly this is going to sit, and I think Continuing on that sort of good chapter theory which was put forward by Lord Peter Hennessy, the for the renowned historian of British politics, who said that essentially a lot of the British Constitution relied on this basis that the people who run it have good moral fibre and can be trusted to ultimately do the right sort of thing. I'm not sure that still holds anymore for a whole manner of reasons. So more bits of it are going to have to get codified. But Hannah, I think one thing the IFG has recommended before you potentially get to that parliamentary stage is to strengthen the basic power. Powers of the office. Now, I think Lord guide asked the Prime Minister for the ability to launch his own inquiries. Now, I think essentially there was an exchange of letters about this following the Party Gate scandal. And the result was that Lord guide or his successor, I should say, would be able to make it known publicly if the Prime Minister blocked him from an inquiry, but he would not have the power to do that. You've also called on them to be able to publish advice without having to go through the Prime Minister. I can see all the logic reasons that that makes sense, but it does sort of risk creating a power base in official dump to some extent. And that if, for example, a future advisor started its own inquiry, came to the advice, was published, said somebody would go, that would then do for that person's career. If, imagine that had happened with Priti Patel. And that creates a bit of a political difficult point.
5: The changes that were made were totally superficial and didn't go far enough, in our view. And I think that actually the fine dividing line is that if you had someone who can gather the facts on their own initiative, set them out in public, then the politics plays out. As you say, it may do for their career, or it may be that in that situation, the prime minister stands up and makes a case why they think that, you know, these facts do not lead to him wishing to sack said minister. But the important thing in that situation would be that the facts would be on the record, And the public could form a judgment, but then that would be a judgment that would end up playing out at the ballot box. And that's the appropriate thing. So I don't think it gives uh, an official in that situation the determining say, but it does mean that the facts are on the record so that politicians can uh, make their cases around them. And finally, Robert, a lot of
1: listeners and I think FT readers will be looking at this and saying, is this really bad, you know, in the fundamental sense that obviously we've had a big mix of prime ministers over British history. We've all had their own various ethics scandals. We were texting backwards and forwards about them yesterday from Walpole to Lloyd George to Eden to Wilson to Blair. They've all done various things that in some ways have alleged to have broken the ministerial code or before it existed just basic decency and non-corruption. Do you think what we've seen with Lord Guide and with Boris
3: Johnson is much worse than those historic examples? I don't think you could say it's worse than the historic examples. As more light is shone upon government, behaviours that politicians could get away with once upon a time become harder. I mean, and some of the people we were talking about, you know, were pre full universal suffrage. I think one of the things that's changed, it's not so much that the behaviour has got worse, but that the, the element of shame has diminished. So when you were caught once upon a time, it could frequently do for your career. Now, there's a general sense that you can bluff your way through. Look, in the end, the this is only ever going to be resolved by the country deciding they're sick of a politician because that's the only way you ever get them out in the end. And even if it's by their own MPs saying, look, we know we've got to act. I don't think the Christopher Geit affair is going to change anybody's perceptions of Boris Johnson because those perceptions are already set. But I do think when we look back at this, we like, this is quite a remarkable thing. A prime minister in charge for three years has already got through two ethics advisors because he doesn't want to take their advice. It tells you something about the nature of the government. And I think the legacy is going to be that we're going to end up with a change to the rules. That's what always happens. We begin to notice a problem and the setup is changed. And the setup will be changed to the disadvantage of prime ministers who, again, will start to lose some of, their, some of the autonomy they enjoy having. And finally, Hannah, do you think that this particular government is taking
1: a different approach compared to recent ones on ethics and the way it's dealing with this? Or is it just changing times and more scrutiny and that sort of thing?
5: I think it's certainly the case that this government seems to be less bothered about being seen to break rules, whether those are international laws or uh, the rules set out in the ministerial code. You know, if Boris Johnson does go ahead and, and not reappoint anyone to this role and not strengthen the role in the way that we've been discussing... That provides a very clear agenda, I think, for the opposition parties in the run-up to the next election. I would definitely expect to see proposals around how government uh, standards and ethics system uh, is run as part of a sort of opposition agenda to show how they would be distinct to this government were they to be elected.
1: Well, I think we can all probably agree there will probably not be those proposals in the Conservative Party's next manifesto. Robert and Hannah, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Pains Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And yes, we do love those positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next week, thanks for listening and enjoy the heat if you're in the UK.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all.